welcome to the Empower Her Fitness Podcast. I'm your host, Aoife, and this is episode number 22. Today's episode is an interview that I did with Luke Tullock, who is a personal trainer from Sydney here in Australia. He has over 13 years experience in the industry, but the big thing about Luke is he has a wealth of knowledge about all things nutrition and fitness. And personally, I think a really great sign of a person's intelligence is their ability to simplify complex topics so that everyone can understand them. And that's something that I feel Luke does really, really well. So in today's episode, we're talking all about muscle building, how muscle grows and how to train more effectively in the gym and breaking down some myths that people might believe about training and lifting weights as well. So I'm really excited for you guys to listen to this conversation and hopefully learn lots from it. So let's get into it. Welcome to the podcast, Luke. Yeah, thanks for being uh, being here with me, I suppose. I was about to say thanks for being here. I'm so used to doing my own freaking podcast. I nearly welcomed you to your own podcast. But no, it's, it's really good to have a chat to you. And uh, great to speak with someone across the other side of the world. You're in Sweden at the moment. Yeah, yeah. We actually just got here. We were in the Netherlands before in The Hague. Uh, we've been in Gothenburg for a week now. So loving it so far we're in a really good spot we were like the housing market here is a little bit crazy because there's like rent control so it's hard to find something but we found this this great apartment in a really good spot so so far so good amazing and how is it over there with covid and everything are you still able to get out and about yeah i mean it's it's pretty free to be honest like we were at a bar last night um there's obviously restrictions in place and all that sort of stuff but uh we're trying to be very careful but um it's pretty free. Like in the Netherlands, we had a, a curfew and it was a little bit more tightened down. But even then, not as much as places like uh, Germany and stuff like that, I think. So, yeah, it's it doesn't feel too bad, to be honest. And we're right next to a nice big open sort of forested area in Gothenburg, which means we can like get outdoors and still be safe, which is really cool. So nice. it's good. Sounds very good. Yeah. Well, let's start off with a little bit of an introduction to yourself for the listeners. And then I have a few questions to kick things off with. So if you want to just um, tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do. Yeah, for sure. Well, I've been a personal trainer since 2008 uh, and I'm originally from Sydney, just in case anyone wonders. Um, And basically, I I just, uh, you know, I didn't really know what to do uh, after I finished school. So I I decided to do a year of business. So I did a year of business at uni and I didn't really like it, but uh, I decided to do personal training in the meantime because I love fitness, right? And it just stuck. So (laughs) a couple of years into doing personal training, I went back to uni and ended up studying neuroscience. Eventually, I kind of swapped around a little bit between biochem and um, psychology and then got into neuroscience. And so that's kind of the formal qualifications, but really just been coaching people for several years now. And um, my my main sort of thing, I guess, is that I'm really interested in the science, but just trying to make it understandable for the average person. So... um, I sort of see myself as a little bit of a bridge between the actual scientists and, you know, the, the fitness enthusiasts out there, I suppose. So that's kind of where I'm at. Um, and so I sort of do that through online coaching. I have some courses for personal trainers, that kind of thing. Excellent. And that's going to tie in so well with what we're going to chat about today, because we're going to talk about the science behind muscle building and muscle growth. But before we get stuck into the sciencey side of things, I wanted to start off with a few fun questions just about yourself. So Question number one is, what does your morning routine look like? Yeah, I'm a pretty pretty routine-driven person, to be honest. So um, 
I used to get up at at 4.30 every morning to go train people, but thankfully, since we've been in Europe, I don't have to do that anymore, coaching people online. So <laughs> so now I'm, I'm up more around seven-ish and a uh, big thing for me is getting my coffee in. I'm a I'm an insufferable coffee nerd. So like, I'm one of those people who finds the, the specialty roasters. I got my own little grinder and various brewing pieces of equipment, all that sort of stuff. So uh, I really enjoy that stuff. So I'll have my coffee in the morning and then get outside and go for a walk. I think that's a really big part of things because uh, get a bit of sun in your eyes and get some physical activity and that sort of thing. Um, you know, and then after that, I'm pretty much straight into, into work at the computer um, so it's a, it's a basic routine. It's nothing complicated, but, uh, you know, it makes a difference if I don't do that exact routine, I think. So, yeah, yeah, I'm very similar. I do the same thing. Coffee first, then go for a walk. I think it's really good to get out like in the sunshine first thing in the morning. It's really good yeah. for like your circadian rhythm and sleep patterns and everything as well. Yeah, absolutely. I find that a really big help to get a bit of sun in your eyes and get that circadian rhythm. I think like the walking is a little bit underrated because obviously you're getting steps and physical activity, but you know, I think the exposure to the sunlight and if you can get outside and just maybe get a little bit of nature as well, if possible, wherever you are, you know, obviously that has some mental health benefits. So yeah, I, I, I rate it. I think it's important. Yeah. Nice and simple morning routine. Love it. Next question mm. for you is, uh, what was the best book you've read recently? There was a book that's a little bit hard to explain what it's about, but it's called Piranesi. And um, it recently came out. It's quite a short book, but it's basically a little story from the point of view of someone who is in this sort of strange maze, I suppose. It's like a, it's a fictional book. I, I read a lot of fiction. I don't actually read very much nonfiction because I spend so much time like reading research and stuff like that. I find it's fun to read like fantasy and sci-fi and things. Um, and that was a really, really good book. It's like I say, it's a bit hard to sort of explain exactly what it's about. But if you read the blurb, I'm sure you'll probably find it interesting. It's quite a quick read, but it's a really good one. So recommend that if you're into any kind of, it's not super fantasy heavy or anything like that, but uh, got a little bit of a twist to it. Nice. How do we spell the name of it? Uh, it is, uh, I think it's P-I-R-A-N-I-S-I. Okay, cool. In case anyone wants to And look that is that. named after... Um, I'm actually going to Google it real quick while I'm sitting here because it is named after an Italian fella who had something to do with a maze, I'm pretty sure. So, yeah, there you go. Uh, he was an Italian graver, etcher, and architect. And so the book is a fantasy novel by English author Susanna Clark. Uh, yeah, very interesting, cool book. I recommend it. Oh, wow. Awesome. Sounds great. Yeah. And then final question on these ones is, and you've already actually answered it, to be honest, uh, coffee or tea drinker? Yeah, totally coffee. I used to be, when I was like younger, I think maybe even preteen, I used to like really love tea, but uh, coffee for sure. And, you know, the first thing we do when we travel, for example, is like I find all the coffee places that I want to go to in the city and I kind of save all of them to Google Maps and then we try and find an Airbnb that's in range of something around there because that's like the number one priority. So I'm that kind of coffee tragic, I have to say. <laughs> I'm like that with gyms. When I travel, I'm like, find the best gym yep. and stay near there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, pretty much, pretty much. <laughs> awesome. Okay, well, let's get stuck into all the science side of things. And I thought we would just chat a little bit about... Um, basically muscle building, how muscle grows and helping people understand the process and helping people differentiate between 
muscle soreness and DOMS and actually building muscle in the gym and what you know you need to do in order to make progress and make gains. So mm. let's start off with just maybe chatting a little bit about how muscle actually grows. Yeah, totally. So there's there's a few different things involved, and there was a uh, there's a guy called Brad Schoenfeld, and he's a researcher, and he published a study back in 2010, I believe, that was just kind of collating a lot of the data that we had on how muscle grows and the mechanisms behind it, because if we can understand the mechanisms for how muscle growth is triggered, then we can obviously potentially build more studies in investigating that and how to actually do it from a training perspective, like what exercise do we use, what rep ranges, all this sort of stuff. And so the original three mechanisms that he proposed were mechanical tension, which is basically literally just tension on the muscle. Um, The second one was metabolic stress. Uh, And so metabolic stress is kind of like an accumulation of chemicals that occurs as a result of the muscle contracting. And so we can kind of, we associate it with like the burn and the pump and all that sort of stuff when we're training. And then the third one is muscle damage. And so the the basic idea is like, oh, well, we damage the muscle and then the body repairs it a little bit stronger, you know? So those were kind of the three mechanisms. And it's really important to understand that when we're trying to study these, it's actually really difficult to separate all of those. Like if we're going to do any training that induces metabolic stress, for example, there's still going to be some tension on the muscles and there's still going to be some muscle damage involved and same with all of the other ones, right? So it's kind of been a long, steady march of progress to try and understand these a little bit better. I think we've gotten to a point where uh, the, really the primary driver, as we understand it right now, is mechanical tension on the muscle. And fundamentally, the way that works is that when we place the muscle fibers under tension, it mechanically squishes and deforms them. And that actually triggers a chemical signal within the muscle. Mm -hmm. And what that chemical signal does is it starts the whole process of what we call protein synthesis. So muscles are basically proteins, uh, protein structures. and, And that just means that amino acids are put together in certain configurations like bricks in a building to build up a muscle. And so what we're really trying to do is we're trying to stimulate muscle protein synthesis as much as we can. And if we get positive muscle protein synthesis over time, eventually that kind of adds up and then we get a visible change to the muscle. And so we think that mechanical tension is really the primary mechanism causing that. Um, that doesn't mean that metabolic stress and muscle damage don't play a role because they probably do. But I think in the past, what I certainly tried to do was I went, oh, cool. Yeah, there's three mechanisms. There's probably like three different types of sort of styles of training we could use to chase down these three mechanisms. So I'm going to program to try and hit those three things. And I, and I don't think that that's, you know, necessarily the case now. So what I used to do was go like, okay, mechanical tension, that means heavy, right? And we've since learned that it doesn't. We can maybe talk a bit about that in a second. Um, so, okay, so I'm going to do one phase of training really heavy, and that's going to be my mechanical tension stimulus. And then metabolic stress. Okay, well, that's high reps and short rest periods. So that's what I'll do for my other training phase. And then muscle damage, that's like accentuated uh, eccentrics or lowering the weight. And it's like going to failure and causing a lot of muscle damage and that sort of stuff. So, you know, that's my third training phase. And as it turns out, that wasn't really the the right way to go about things. Um, So what we're really trying to do is get this mechanical tension on the muscle. And we can kind of talk a bit more about how that really looks in practice in a sec. But I just want to impress upon people listening that there's a limit to how much actual work we can do 
because we're kind of whenever we're training we're trying to play off like um how much muscle growth or muscle protein synthesis can we induce but at the same time there's a limit to how much we can do before we start getting uh too much accumulated fatigue and then we can't train as well we can't recover as well and that sort of thing so it's kind of like an interplay between those two things so maybe I'll pause for, for breath there. Hey guys, just quickly interrupting this episode to let you know that today's episode is brought to you by NewZest. NewZest has some of the most advanced nutritional products on the market and every ingredient is backed by science. I use their greens powder, which is called Good Green Vitality, every single day without fail. And honestly, within about four weeks of starting to take it, I noticed that my energy levels increased dramatically. Not only that, but my sleep also improved and my skin as well. So I am a big advocate of it and absolutely love it. It's a food-based supplement and contains more than 75 vitamins, minerals and essential nutrients. It also tastes amazing, which I personally think is very rare for a greens powder. So if you want to try it yourself, you can use the code EMPOWER20, that is E-M-P-O-W-E-R 20, for 20% off by visiting their website, which is newzest.com or newzest.com.au. That's N-U-Z-E-S-T, and I'll pop the link in the show notes below also. There, and yeah. if you have something that you want to directly to, go for it. Awesome. Okay, we'll come back to um, mechanical tension in a moment, but I wanted to maybe just go from there to just talking about muscle damage and how people often correlate the feeling of muscle damage, as in DOMS, with having a successful training session and how, like, for a lot of people that are new to training, maybe understanding that because they're new to training, they're actually going to stimulate a lot of muscle damage in their early training days. And that ne doesn't necessarily mean they're actually going to be building muscle over that time because their body is just trying so hard to rebuild the damage to the muscle. Yeah, you're 100% right. Um, it's a great point. So I think when we train, we sort of have this this cognitive bias in that, you know, more suffering means more gains. And that's not necessarily true. So we kind of like feeling sore and really wrung out and tired after a workout or something like that. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you're building muscle. So especially in beginners, what happens is they are particularly susceptible to muscle damage. And very quickly, you get sort of accustomed to that and, and you get less muscle damage as you continue to train. We call this the repeated bout effect. But fundamentally, what happens is when we train, we're going to get some breakdown of the muscle. Uh, and that happens for a variety of reasons. Sometimes it's literally the mechanical sort of tearing of the muscle tissue because we're placing tension across it and it's contracting. More often, it's actually just a release of enzymes from um, the chemical reactions that cause the muscle to contract. And that can actually degrade some parts of the muscle. But regardless, we're getting some muscle damage and that has to be repaired. And so what happens is we have this interplay between stimulating muscle protein synthesis and then we have some muscle protein breakdown as well. And so those two have to be added together. So we're getting some negative stuff happening and some positive growth happening. And the net of that is really how much muscle we're building. So you can see that if we induce too much muscle damage, you could potentially cancel out any muscle protein synthesis that you've stimulated or even go into the negative. And because as a beginner, you're pretty susceptible to muscle damage, what we have understood now from research is that even in the early couple of weeks, there's probably not too much actual muscle gain happening. 
because there's just so much muscle damage that your body has to synthesize all this protein just to sort of dig itself out of the hole from training. Now, as the repeated bout effect kicks in after the first few weeks or month or so of training, you know, then we can start to get positive uh, muscle protein synthesis and we start building more muscle from there. But I guess the real issue then with trying to chase down muscle damage is that obviously you are digging that hole that you have to sort of synthesize more protein to, to get positive with your net protein balance. Um, and, and the other thing is what I mentioned before is actually fatigue. So uh, it, it, as you get more muscle damage, we get greater fatigue. And if fatigue accumulates, it just means that our performance over time is going to be impacted. We can't perform to the same degree over time. And that means potentially that, you know, if you have a lot of fatigue and then you can't perform as well in your next session, you might stimulate less muscle protein synthesis. And it sort of has this compounding effect where over time now you're actually impacting your future gains. Mm -hmm. So that's why muscle damage, you know, it feels nice sometimes um, to be a little bit sore and there's nothing wrong with that. But if you're sort of excessively sore or just doing tons of volume and always training close to failure, inducing all of this muscle damage, then it could actually hurt your long-term potential to grow muscle. Mm -hmm. And I guess another important point on that, and just as a new train as a new trainee, I guess, if you are finding that you're quite sore between workouts, also understanding how much nutrition is going to play a part in helping you recover and helping um, repair that muscle damage because you do need to be taking insufficient protein. Yeah, totally. There's, you know, the, the training is one part of this whole thing affecting muscle protein uh, synthesis. And there's actually a few different factors. So we have some training factors, um, but we also have some nutritional factors, like you mentioned. So things like uh, having enough protein around, but the muscle is quite literally made out of the protein you eat. Uh, so having that there is important. You need the, the bricks to build the wall, so to speak. Um, and then you know, having enough energy around and all this sort of stuff is also important. So there's a few different factors that kind of go into maximizing muscle protein synthesis for sure. And so as a beginner, you can definitely promote your recovery from that, from that muscle damage by making sure that, Hey, we have enough protein around, like we're, we're focusing on sleeping well, managing our stress, things like that as well, for sure. Awesome. And then let's um, maybe just circle back then to talking about mechanical tension and how we can maximize using that in training in order to make gains, I guess. Yeah, for sure. So mechanical tension, sometimes people conflate, I mentioned this before, heavy weights with mechanical tension, and that's not necessarily the case. And this can take a little bit of like wrapping your head around. But when we talk about mechanical tension, we're talking about it on a per muscle fiber basis. We're not talking about the entire muscle itself. So let's take your biceps, for example. The actual bicep muscle is comprised of thousands and thousands of individual muscle fibers. And they're quite small, right? But they all kind of get braided together to form this bigger muscle belly. And so all we're trying to do is place as much tension as we can across all of those individual muscle fibers. And that means that actually you don't necessarily need to lift very heavy weights to do that. And I'll explain how this works. So we have what we call motor units. And a motor unit is basically just the nerve that switches on a muscle fiber and the muscle fiber together. It's like a unit, right? So that's the motor unit. And our brain's really, really smart. When we try and lift something, it understands that, hey, we don't need to use every available muscle fiber, every available motor unit to lift something. 
because then we would have zero control over our movement, right? It makes no sense. So for lifting something light that doesn't require maximal effort, the brain just uses the slowest, weakest motor units to start with. And if it decides like, hey, actually, we need a bit more force here, either it's heavier than we thought or we need to keep lifting this for more than, you know, five, 10 times or whatever. Okay, we can start to call on more muscle fibers and more motor units to help us lift this weight. So when we're lifting a weight in the gym and we're doing like 10 reps, rep number one, brain's going, no worries, we can lift this another 10 times. Like we don't need all of our available muscle fibers. And that means that there's a proportion of the muscle fibers in your biceps that aren't getting stimulated and they aren't seeing any mechanical tension across them. Some of them are, but not all of them. But we have fatigue, right? You get tired during a set. So as we keep lifting, we maybe get to set to rep number five, rep number six. Okay, now we're getting some fatigue in those muscle fibers and they can't keep contracting forever. So the brain goes, well, we've got to keep lifting this weight. So now we have to call on the guys who have been resting on the sidelines to come in and help out. So they jump in and they start contracting. And as we get closer and closer to failure, of course, what happens? More muscle fibers are being fatigued, more have to be recruited. So the idea is that if we get close enough to failure, even if it's not a really, really heavy weight, we've called on all of our available muscle fibers, we've asked them to do some work, and that means that they've had some mechanical tension placed across them. So what we found in research is that if we take our absolute one rep max, the most we can lift for a single rep, we get similar muscle growth in the research, whether we use 30% of that weight to failure or whether we use 80% of that weight to failure. And that corresponds to a rep range of roughly five reps to failure all the way up to like 30, 35 reps to failure. And that's really, really different to the traditional sort of bodybuilding rep range of eight to 12 or whatever it is. In both cases, you're actually applying the same amount of mechanical tension across the individual muscle fibers. It's just that you start doing that from earlier in a really, really heavy set. So from maybe from rep one in a five rep set, you're getting tension across all your fibers because it's heavy. Your brain goes, oh shit, I got to use all of these fibers. And if you're doing a 30 rep set, it might not happen until you're at rep number 25 or 26, right? Um, and, and so that's how mechanical tension essentially works is that we're just trying to get close enough to failure because if we get close enough to failure and it's probably within three, four or five reps, we don't know for sure then we're placing tension across every available muscle fiber in that big muscle. And that means it's going to get the stimulus to grow. And I think that's really good news for people that have been training from home, I guess, with limited access to weights and during lockdowns around the world as well, understanding that you can actually still promote muscle protein synthesis while using lighter weights if you are pushing yourself that bit more. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's one of these things as well where sometimes people get a little bit caught up on what actually causes, you know, what's the best for muscle growth. And, you know, if we understand this idea, we can suddenly say like, okay, so all of the muscle fibers are looking for is to be placed under tension to grow. Right. And that means that, Hey, uh, you know, thinking about, you don't have to use barbells to do that. You don't have to use traditional weights. You don't have to use very heavy sets, you know, um, you can use bodyweight exercises provided it gives you enough resistance, you know, all of that sort of stuff. So it sort of has some really interesting implications for how we traditionally train. Um, now, I just want to stop here and say for a second that you can go too light uh, with, tra with training to failure. So we have found that below about 30% of your 1RM, uh, the muscle growth is not the same. And I think that's because there's not enough 
simultaneous, uh, we call them cross bridges formed in the muscle. So essentially the, the magnitude of tension just gets a little bit too low mm-hmm. in a muscle fiber if we go too light. So for sure, if you're sort of able to get more than about 30 reps in a set, then it's probably a little bit too light. And probably people are wondering as well, like, well, how come you said five reps before? Can't you go heavier than that? Because, you know, if you're recruiting all of your muscle fibers from rep one on a three rep set, why, why don't we just do heaps of sets of three or something? Um, we also need to have a certain amount of time under tension for this to maximize as well. So that's why the rep range is kind of between five and 30 ish. It's sort of rough, but yeah, totally. It means that training from home, and this is something that I've had to do. I've been training with uh, some bands and like rocks and stuff that I find outside (laughs) (laughs) since December um, because the gyms have been closed and you know, you do have to get a little bit creative, but fundamentally, if you kind of know that basic uh, principle, there's, there's kind of, it opens up a whole world of, of different things you can do in terms of training for sure. Yeah, definitely. And I think it's also then helpful for people, helpful for people to understand that. And on, it highlights that there is no perfect rep range and no perfect plan for you to get results. Like it's understanding that the way you train is really what's going to impact things. And um, maybe that ties in with what one of my next questions is going to be. And, you know, um, helping people understand how to push themselves that bit further in the gym because a lot of people and I noticed this when I was working as a personal trainer as well that you know when people come and see a PT they obviously push themselves that bit more because they have someone pushing them and that makes them realize that in their normal day-to-day training they're doing themselves they probably really aren't pushing themselves that bit more and maybe getting the most out of their session at all. Yeah and I definitely think that this is one of the issues with very high rep sets as well is that when we're talking about going to failure, we're talking about physically being unable to complete another rep, whereas we often quit on sets just because it feels uncomfortable, right? Not because we can't physically lift more. And that means that like, if you're doing a set of 30 to failure, a lot of people kind of stop before that because it burns a lot and it's a long set. It's hard to stay focused for that amount of time. But yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. I think a lot of people don't truly get within range of failure. And there was a study that uh, we sort of chatted a little bit about as well, where um, I think it was in 2017, it was a really, really, really cool study. So what they did in this study is they got 160 guys to come in and they asked them, hey, on your bench press, when you normally train, what weights do you use for 10 reps? Like this is your regular session where you're trying to get in and grow muscle, get stronger, that sort of thing. What weight would you use for 10 reps? And so they collected that from all of the subjects and they went, righto, we're going to put that weight on the bench press right now and we're going to get you to do reps until you hit absolute failure. And obviously they had spotters, they had researchers, they're yelling at them like, come on, let's do it, get more. And it was really interesting. So they normally uh, would do 10 reps of this weight. And what was very interesting was that more than half of the subjects got over 15 reps with a weight that they would normally use for 10 reps. And in fact, some of them got like in the 20s. So they were literally using like, you know, they were getting 50% uh, less reps with what, what they could have. And so this was a really good indicator that, hey, a lot of people are probably going in and thinking like, this is a good working weight for me and for this rep range, but maybe they're not quite pushing themselves as hard as they need to, to optimally grow muscle. It's not to say that you won't grow any muscle, of course, but, you know, to maximize mechanical tension, we do want to get within probably three, four, five reps of failure at least. So it's a very interesting study, and I think that um, this makes a case for why it can be occasionally helpful to go all the way to failure because 
it gives you what we call in psychology an anchor. So this means that I okay, I understand what failure feels like now. I understand what my I've got a baseline that I can compare against. And that means that if I decide, okay, I'm going to go within two or three reps of failure from now on, I kind of understand where the failure point is and it helps me to understand what two reps away from failure is and what three reps away from failure is. So yeah, for sure. It's a it's a really big point. Um, now, why wouldn't you just go to failure every time? Well, the issue is again, that fatigue thing. So what happens is we, as we get closer to failure, we recruit exponentially more muscle fibers to help us get there. But we also get exponentially more fatigue built up. And so again, it's that balance between like, you know, sometimes I've sometimes had people say to me, like, if I can just guarantee that I'm recruiting everything possible by going to failure on every single set, why don't I just do that? And the answer is because you accumulate so much fatigue and it actually causes more muscle damage. Uh, and so as we, as we chatted about, that might not be a good thing in the long term. Um, and so you kind of have to find this middle ground somewhere. So you definitely have to get close enough to failure, but we don't want to go to failure every single time. But uh, as I said, it can be really helpful to just understand where your limits are. Um, and that can be a really useful anchor point to then kind of optimize all the other sets that you do. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think that's a really good point to make because people might be listening to, listening to this and thinking, I need to go to failure on every single set. And obviously that's not going to be optimal for muscle gains and it probably won't be optimal for injury prevention and recovery from training and so on as well. Yeah, for sure. For sure. So my next uh, point or next question I wanted to chat about was, I guess, and it kind of just ties in with that. So it's very similar. Um, you had a post about making your sets count so you don't have to bury yourself with volume. So I guess it's a little bit the opposite of what we we're talking about there, doing lots and lots of reps if you're training from home. So if you do have access to a gym and we want to just talk about maybe how people can make the most out of their training sessions. Yeah, totally. So I see this trend now where there are sort of training volume recommendations out there. So, you know, this concept of, of at least getting close to failure, if not going to failure. And then the idea of how many sets do you do on an exercise or on a body part? And that those recommendations can get quite high. And I think sometimes people can be a bit afraid that like, if I don't come out of the gym feeling like that was really, really hard, feeling sore after their training, that it's not going to be optimal for their muscle growth. And that's just not true. So, you know, you can't really measure the success of a workout by how sore you get or how sweaty you are afterwards or anything like that. So I've seen a real trend of people coming to me doing very high numbers of sets, um, doing like lots and lots and lots of different exercises in, in, in a single training phase. Uh, I guess because there's this like fear of missing out or this fear of like, hey, I, I just want to cover my bases and make sure I'm actually doing enough. And you know, based on what we've been talking about, you can actually do too much and that can hinder your gains in the long term. And so I think that it's really important to understand that uh, if we're making progress at a lower amount of training volume, you know, you're not going necessarily all the way to failure, you're doing like fewer sets, if anything, and you're still making decent progress, that's actually a much better position to be in than having to do lots and lots and lots of sets. So I'll give you a bit of an example. In the literature, you often see these recommendations of how many working sets per body part should I do? And a working set is just a set that's close enough to failure that we've been talking about. And often you'll see a recommendation of 10 to 20 working sets per week per body part. So if I wanted to do, you know, 10 working sets per week on my quads, 
I might do four sets of squats, might do four sets of leg extensions and two sets of leg press or something like that in a week. Okay, so that's fine. What I often see is that people go quite high on that range. So they might go closer to the 20 mark. And the issue with this is that if you start high and you're generating fatigue, it's very difficult to dissipate that fatigue and understand if a lower amount of training volume is actually going to work better for you. So it's like this sort of curve where if we do too little, obviously you're not going to get optimal muscle growth. But as we increase the volume, we start to get better muscle growth, more muscle growth. But then it gets to the point where that sort of uh, flattens out and then it starts going down again on the other side of, okay, now I'm doing too much volume and now my gains are going down again. So it's like this nice little hill, this little curve. And so if you start with too much volume, the issue is that you might decide, okay, well, uh, maybe I can get away with less volume. I can, I can do less, get better gains. Well, let's say I'm doing 20 sets a week and I decide to drop down to 16 sets per week. Okay, I still have to have this time lag where I wait for that fatigue to dissipate before I can actually see the results of doing 16 sets a week. Mm. So now this is maybe extending my timeline out by a few weeks. Okay, well, maybe I want to test out 14 sets per week. I got to drop that down again. And then I got to wait for this fatigue to dissipate before I can actually see the results from doing 14 sets per week. So there's a bit of a time lag issue there. So what I prefer to do is like, if we start at the other end and we go, okay, maybe I'm going to start at even eight sets per week or 10 sets per week or something like that. Cool. If that's working and you should make some gains on that, it might not be your optimal rate of gain, but you should make some gains because it's a reasonable amount of volume. Okay. I wonder if I do a little bit more volume, maybe I can make faster gains. Cool. So I'm going to go from eight sets per week to 10 sets. Sweet. Maybe you see better gains. Maybe you don't. If you do, cool. Well, let me try 12 sets per week. Do you see better gains or not? If you do, cool. Now I can go up. You're not waiting for that fatigue to dissipate before you can kind of see what the results are for your new training volume level. So, you know, I guess that's, that's kind of where I'm coming at with this is that oftentimes doing a little bit less training volume, but making sure that you're pushing hard on those on those sets, like I said, making them count in the sense that we're not doing hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of reps that aren't close to failure, that uh, comprise like 20, 25 sets a week and like a jillion different exercises. If we can be more targeted with it, if we can be a little bit more precise, then you can sort of find a zone that works well for you. And, and in my mind, if we can make the most amount of progress with sort of the least amount of work, that's kind of what we're looking for. And that's certainly not to say that it's not going to require a lot of effort or it's not going to feel hard, but it does mean that, you know, we want to be a little bit smarter about how we're approaching this instead of just throwing the kitchen sink. Um, because fundamentally that can really run you into the ground. It can stifle your gains long-term. It can be time consuming. It can impact the rest of your life. Um, and so that can be a little bit of an issue for sure. And it's, and it's a big problem uh, that I see with a lot of my clients. So if I have clients come to me and, you know, you can imagine the scenario, they're doing all of this work and it's like, I'm so frustrated. I'm not making gains, but I work so hard. Cool. Well, if I cut your volume down by a third and then suddenly you're doing less, but you're progressing more, it's like magic, right? But it, it kind of makes sense when you think about it. Such a common issue because people, I guess, read so much about what they should be doing and then they just want to try everything. And like you said, a lot of people are just chasing that soreness as well when it comes to training. So they want to go into the gym. They want to feel it the next day because that's what they actually associate with progression when in actual fact, that's not going to be the case. 
Um, so yeah, what would you say to somebody who maybe um, wants to kind of focus a bit more on building muscle and building strength? You know, what would you say like the main pointers you would give them would be? Yeah, cool. So I would say, actually, I just want to touch quickly on a point you made trying to do everything at once. Sometimes we get this fear of missing out of like, you know, trying different exercises or having a certain machine in or enough volume on a certain muscle group. And I think it's really important to understand that like, hey, things are phasic in training and life. And that just because you're not doing your favorite sort of machine in this phase doesn't mean you can't include it in the next phase or focus on something else in the next phase. So if we kind of zoom out and think about a, a six month timeline, as opposed to the, like the next six weeks, then I think that can be really helpful for people to feel like, okay, cool. I can always include that later and I'm not going to miss out. But I'd say my, my pointers are in general, we want to get close to failure on our sets where we can. And that means within a few reps of failure, I would say that it's helpful to every now and then take a set to failure so you can understand where that limit is on an exercise. The next thing I would say is that you do need to do enough training volume, but it doesn't need to be excessive. And I would actually start on the lower end and give yourself enough time to see the gains. And how do we measure those gains? I would say that there's two ways. The first is that if you can do the same weight on an exercise for more reps compared to your previous workout, that's one indicator, or you can do the same number of reps, but lift more weight. So those are kind of the two indicators. And if those are going up over time, and it doesn't have to be from workout to workout, it could be over the course of, you know, one month or something, then you're going to be building muscle. You're pretty guaranteed to be building some muscle. So just monitoring your progress with that and, and starting with a lower amount of volume, but making those sets really good is the best way to go about things. And then once you've got that data, you can kind of tweak things by pushing it up a little bit and go, okay, cool. Am I still gaining, you know, at the same rate in terms of my progress in the gym and that sort of thing. Uh, so that's kind of my fundamentals is like, let's not conflate the sensations that we're feeling in the gym with actual progress in terms of muscle and strength building. Uh, I guess it's also important to say that like, if you just really enjoy getting your sweat on and feeling sore and all that sort of stuff, it's no problem with that, but you just have to understand that there's a trade-off. If your goal is to optimally build absolutely as much muscle as possible, then that might not be the best way to go all the time. If your goal is to like build a lot of muscle, but still feel really ruined after a session because you like that feeling, that's fine. You just have to understand the trade-offs there. Um, so I guess that's kind of the fundamentals of it, you know, uh, from a training perspective is like, we're just going to get enough training volume. We want to train reasonably close to failure. And we want to track our progress by tracking how many reps we can do at a given weight or how much uh, weight increases we get at a given number of reps over time. And if that's sort of going in the positive direction, you know, you're probably going to be building muscle from your training. Fantastic. Love it. Really good and um, simple points for people to take away. And I think if there's one thing that I would love people to take away from this chat would be the understanding that, you know, muscle soreness and DOMS doesn't necessarily indicate it being a great session. I think you explained that really well. So thanks for adding that one in there for us. Um, Luke, before we finish up, where can everybody find you? Yeah, yeah, it's real easy. So uh, my website is luketullock.com and my Instagram is underscore Luke Tullock. Uh, and that's pretty much it. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today, Luke. Yeah, thanks a ton. Lots of fun. 
And that wraps up today's episode. Thank you so much for listening. If you did enjoy the episode and you feel somebody else would benefit from it, feel free to send it to a friend or colleague or even share it to your Instagram story and perhaps let us know what you learned from the episode. You can tag me at ActivelyEFA and you can tag Luke at Luke Tullock. And don't forget to hit that subscribe button because I will have more interviews coming up in the coming weeks, which I think you guys will be really interested in. So speak to you guys in the next episode. Oh,